Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these episodes, we will be speaking with leaders and activists in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the many ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors. We prioritize guidance that advances equity, and we look at the barriers to improved outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by systems and institutions and a step towards support that center survivors, their families, and their communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these episodes to engage in discussion in your own organizations and communities. We look forward to getting your stories about such efforts. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. My name is Wendy Mota, and I am so excited to be here with two wonderful women who I will um, introduce, or they will introduce themselves in just a minute, and we can start with Eric. Can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Hi, my name is Erica Maria. I am here in Detroit, Michigan. I'm a domestic violence advocate and sexual assault advocate. I'm also um, the executive director of the nonprofit Supreme Transitions, uh, where we assist survivors of violence in becoming totally self-sufficient in five core areas. And I am also a DIVA cohort member under Ujima. Thank you so much, Erica. And Umi, can you please introduce yourself to our audience today? Yes, thank you for inviting me to participate in this. My name is Umi Hankins. And first of all, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that I am joining you this afternoon from downtown Detroit, Michigan, near the Detroit River. And first of all, I want to honor the ancestral lands on which I've made my home. Detroit occupies the contemporary and um, ancestral homelands of three Anishinaabe nations of Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, and the Potawatomi. And um, through a treaty of Detroit, um, these tribes and the Wyandotte tribe and the Chippewa tribe ceded this land um, that I now sit on um, and occupy to the city in 1807. And additionally, I want to honor that my roots are here because of the fierce and formidable journey of Harriet Tubman and other abolitionists. Detroit was the last stop of the Underground Railroad between 1800 and 1865. And Detroit is across the river from Windsor, Canada, uh, where Black enslaved people journeyed over this river, this Detroit River, and sought freedom, as well as enslaved people held captive in uh, Upper Canada came in the opposite direction back across this river to Detroit, seeking their freedom. And um, there was also this slave plantation in the north. (laughs) We think of slavery about the south, but there was a slave plantation within blocks of my home, if not including the land that I currently occupy. 
And on this plantation, it, it, Blacks, um, African-Americans were enslaved, African descent people were enslaved, as well as Native American women uh, and tribes were enslaved. And Native American women and Black women were used as sex slaves and contrabands. And so it is within this framework this environment that I uplift the work that I do. And um, I've worked in the anti-violence movement, um, anti-violence against women movement field for nearly 50 years in numerous capacities. And over that time, I've been an advocate and activist. I've provided leadership to local and national organizations, programs and events. Um, I have focused on community organizing and awareness policy research program, leadership development, and providing technical assistance and training over that course of time. Currently, I'm, I'm a national consultant, and I'm senior advisor to UGMA, the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community, and the National Organization of Sisters of Color Ending Sexual Assault, um, as well as other organizations. At, and I'm also a training direct, director for the state of Michigan, um, Division of Victim Services. And at the core of my work, I just want to say that I'm committed to readdressing the historical, intergenerational, and I think the impact of oppression on racially marginalized and disenfranchised communities, in particularly the diverse Black community. So thank you for allowing me to participate with you today. Thank you so much, Umi, and thank you for centering us, for reminding us, you know, where you stand. And by doing so, I think where you are physically, right? And I think that's A, it's it's so powerful to start that way, but also it centers us, right? It connects to the conversation that we're about to have. And it also, I think, um, inspires me to think about it, right, in terms of where I am physically as well. So thank you both. I am... Uh, excited and truly honored to be in both of your presence today. Um, so let's let's dive right in. Today we've chosen the topic around centering Blackness, right? So putting Blackness at the center um, and particularly talking about services, intervention, wholeness, and healing for Black families, for Black women. And I, you know, listening to both of you introduce yourself, um, I hear... <laughs> The, the depth and the wealth of knowledge and expertise in the room, right, in the virtual room. So we don't have to spend time presenting or talking about how the domestic violence field slash movement started in this country, because we all know that, right? We're all familiar with how, you know, mainstream services and interventions uh, set up or were set up around domestic violence. But I think my first question for you both today is really, how have, in your experiences, how has the field excluded Black mothers in the domestic violence movement? And I don't know, maybe Erica, can you start us off with that? And then Umi, please. Sure. Um, and so Black mothers have been excluded from the field of domestic violence um, in several different ways. Personally, from my experience as an advocate working for organizations and agencies that have boots on the ground in current real time, I have seen that Black mothers are not invited to share their voice. 
They're not invited to share their expertise in what has happened to their families or how they have tried to protect their families. They have not been invited to um, the rooms and tables as experts. They've been completely excluded and re-victimized by several different systems and agencies Mm -hmm. and separated from their children, their loved ones. They have been made to feel um, afraid of some of their trusted family members because of over-surveillance and that our communities have been trained and taught to kind of tell on each other and over-surveil and police each other in the hardest ways that is kind of hard to even navigate. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think about how uh, Black mothers parent. That has not been acknowledged. There hasn't been much research on how Black mothers actually move in that role as a mom, as the uh, nurse, as the dietitian, Mm -hmm. as the events coordinator, as the disciplinarian. All of these different roles that we embody as Black mothers with the, you know, intersection of domestic violence, we haven't been asked um, how we feel, what we need, and they haven't been included in the larger conversations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Erica. Umi, what are your thoughts on how we've uh, excluded Black mothers? Is there anything new um, in addition to what Erica said that you would like to add or that, you know, you've experienced through your work? Yes, and thank you so much, Erica, for really giving that broad way in which Black women, Black mothers work today, currently in our in this field. And I'd like to give a little context for some of the historical ways then in which this <laughs> has happened as well. And so pretty much just like Erica said, I want to acknowledge that Black women mother the world. <laughs> you know, we we mother whether we birth children or not, we mother the world. And we do that in all the ways in which Erica outlined in our professions, in our community service work, in our communities, we mother the world. And then I want to also make the distinction that black women in general have been excluded from mainstream white majority-led field of domestic violence as it exists today, as it is called today. But I also want to acknowledge that Black women were at the forefront of this work. So while we look at the white mainstream majority-led field movement and how Black women are excluded, we have to say that we're invisible to the work that we've done. So at the forefront of this work, During slavery, we mothered Mm -hmm. each other, we protected each other, we birthed our babies, we we did all of those things as an enslaved population. In our churches, in our neighborhood, we were hiding survivors throughout the history, including before the 1970s when Mm -hmm. this movement Mm -hmm. took place. And so this was not new for us, we led the field on anti-violence against women. We must think about our history of being abused by those who not only were intimate partners to us, but we must think about our history and how we were owned and enslaved as black mothers, as how we were bred to be mothers, and uh, how we took care of one another's children, and how that continues to persist in our communities as we think of ourselves still in many black communities as being a village 
and having a responsibility to take care of one another. But this, this mothering took place over not only um, a desire to have children, but took place in rape situations. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I just want to make sure that we, we put this out here that talking about black mothers, there's a foundation that exists that has created the way in which the white majority led field has um, disengaged us, ignored us, and that, uh, you know, we were engulfed in all of these things in our everyday lives starting, you know, way before the 1970s, as I said, in this movement. So we need to upend and turn the table on upside mm -hmm. down so that the legs become the roots. We are mm -hmm. the legs of the movement. Mm -hmm. We are the roots of the movement. And we need to take our rightful place. And that Black women defied enslavers, they defied laws and systems, mm -hmm. and still today we defy social constructs in order for us to survive. And um, we have survived with, uh, although we have survived, I, you know, I want to make the point that we have survived with consequences of trauma, ill mm -hmm. health, separation from our children and families, through the way in which systems have colluded institutionally and systemically and organizationally in order to consciously and unconsciously ensure that our marginalization and disenfranchisement has continued throughout history, throughout our lives, throughout the mainstream, predominantly led white domestic violence-led movement, Black women are invisible. We're invisible at shelters. We're invisible in the way in which we do the work. We're denied the the financial opportunities to work in our own communities. We're on the low pay scale. We're seen as being the non-essential workers as far as leadership is concerned, but the essential workers as far as manual labor is concerned. Mm -hmm. and so we want to upend that. We want our yeah. roots to show and be included. Thank you so much, Umi. And Erica, I know that you have your hand up. <laughs> I just wanted to uh, circle back behind sure. what Umi is saying and completely amplify that by um, kind of challenging those who may be listening to this podcast to ask the internal question within their own agencies and um, programs. How are you including Black mothers? Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. do you value Black mothers in the work of domestic violence and in, mm -hmm. within this field? That's right. And you're you're ahead of me, Erica, because that's kind of where I was going with the next question. And before we do the next question, I, I just have to say that listening to both of you, it's like, you know, a word is a word is a word. You know, in our field, we coin, um, we define things, but people have true lived experiences. And, and just listening to you, I, I am very specifically connected to resilience, right? To the resilience in Black communities. And not only here in continental USA, but also, you know, the, the Black diaspora, right? Like listening to your words reminds me that the Black community has been making it despite of the inclusion, despite being left out. You know, it's just, it's such a powerful reminder, right? Um, before people were using the term resilience, we were already 
resilient. And yeah, my next question is actually exactly what you were saying, Erica. So what is the flip side? We've talked about how Black communities have been excluded from the field, from the movement. We've talked about resilience. What would each one of you say to organizations across the country that are really trying to center Black families in the work? Or even what has that looked like in your experience when it's done um, successfully? Um, Umi, maybe you can start us off with this this time. Sure. And um, in order to center us there, I, I want to talk a little bit about what it looks like now. You know, how, how do we need to look at where we are now to create this vision? And so, you know, what I recognize is that institutions, systems, and organizations and individuals that really comprise those entities, that they have to identify how whiteness, the issue of whiteness has historically dominated the basic foundation of what is righteous and Mm -hmm. um, assess, they need to assess their role in continuing this malfeasance today because it still continues and that we must self-correct. So, you know, in the way in which we operate today, we're using stereotypes of Black women through a lens of white superiority as a base of our belief system, which means that believing that Black people are aggressive, illiterate, sexually promiscuous, uh, liars, thieves, alcoholics, drug addicts, this will always lead to the disproportional and disparate rates of Black people having adverse experience, not just in their childhood, but all over their lifespan. You know, as we Mm -hmm. talk about adverse experiences, we as Black women have those throughout our lives. And um, if we were to center Black families in our work towards racial equity, we would provide support and resources and love to Black families and their communities. And, you know, I have to connect the families with the communities because we see ourselves together. We don't see ourselves separately from our communities. We have to provide that love, support, resources, and we have to provide it at disproportional and disparate rates. We have mm-hmm. to go beyond what we do for everybody else to make up for the, dis- the ill wills of the disproportional rates that we're experiencing right now. So my vision is that Black families in their communities would be able to heal from the mental, physical embodiment and uh, the environmental colonization and occupation, really, of white supremacy that just engulfs us, you know, that just takes over our every, our being, our community, our families. It just engulfs us. We have to do away with that. Um, mm-hmm. Black families and communities, I envision, would love each other. They would love themselves. They would honor each other and themselves. And um, we have to go beyond marginalization. Um, we have to go beyond equality as we think about these things. We have to go to giving more to those who have systemically received less in Mm -hmm. order for us to readdress this harm. So this is doing more for us. This is the vision so that we can be healed, so that we can have well-being. That's the vision. Thank Thank you, Umi. Erica, what are your thoughts on what that looks like, centering Black families? 
Yes, I love everything that Umi said. It's so on point, always. I'm so blessed to uh, be a part of this podcast with her and you. Um, But yeah, so I think um, the first thing is that we have to check our bias, our implicit bias, and the ideas of stereotypes. You know, we have to get honest. We have to be very real about the stereotypes that we put on Black mothers, Black women. You know, historically, the welfare queens and that we're lazy and we just want to hand out, you know, and, and I'm, I've been using the word we because I, I neglected to say in my introduction that I am a survivor of domestic violence and sexual assault and have been re-victimized by systems and agencies where I did not feel heard and was afraid and was not included in the healing journey for my family or receiving the resources that I needed because I was instantly judged Mm -hmm. um, by the way that I looked, the way that I dressed, the way that I carried myself with my hair or my makeup, or that my child was um, brought into the room in a particular manner and she was well-dressed and wasn't, you know, a problem, quote-unquote. And so I think we have to, like Umi said, we have to check our bias, our implicit bias in our agencies within ourselves um, and within the programming, within our policies. How is white supremacy showing up and Mm -hmm. needs to be removed and eradicated? And then, you know, what we've been doing together is hosting listening sessions to hear from Black mothers and Black women who are survivors of domestic violence with different intersections of homelessness or substance abuse or the child welfare system. And so we want to get real firsthand knowledge from these women so that we can understand better how to provide services or to train agencies and programs on how to render those services without just the cookie cutter um, way that things have already been in place that don't work for black families Mm -hmm. that are continuing to re-victimize us and um, remove our children from our homes and destroy our families with, with several different things that Umi also mentioned. You know, the residual effects with trauma um, that just continues to get passed down because it's never addressed. That's another issue, is how are the policies in place um, traumatizing women, Black women, and Black mothers, and Black children, that some of these girl children will become mothers, right? And Mm -hmm. so how do we heal? And understanding how Black women and Black mothers heal when dealing with trauma. I think that's something that needs to be looked at. And so um, technical assistance to agencies and programs is needed. Culturally specific training um, is needed. But individual assessments, personal individual assessments, organizational assessments, um, I think those are some of the things that would be beneficial just to start Yeah. You know, and for um, employees or agencies, uh, workers to feel safe and vulnerable enough to even speak to their own lived experience, because a lot of times survivors are working for these agencies and programs and have become acclimated to the ill system in place and adopt those ill practices. Mm -hmm. And but they don't have a resource for themselves, even if they're currently experiencing domestic violence. So we need to be able to start having some internal assessments and needs assessments for um, people within our agencies to be able to get resources as well as provide those resources. 
That's right. to the women in community. Yeah, that's such a rich conversation and responses from both of you. Thank you so much. I think, you know, I <clears throat> I actually would would add money funding is needed yes. as well. Always. And and right, like we should have said, just let's just assume it's always needed. But you know, unrestricted funding, right? So that we're giving the power back to Black survivors and, and letting them, you know, so we talked about how they've been excluded, but the, letting them tell us, right, what they need versus the other way around, which I think has been done, you know, unfortunately, so much that has harmed our, our communities. So, you know, the last question you've, you've both already sort of answered, right? So we're, we're talking about, because part of this uh but the goal of this podcast is to stimulate conversations across the nation for domestic violence um, uh, coalitions at, you know, local organizations, community-based organizations to take away something, right? And, and for us, is really shaping practice and or policy. So from both of you, I heard, you know, um, Umi, you, you were talking about how do we offset some of the harm that we have already caused Black mothers, Black survivors, and Black communities. Um, both of you talked about, you know, white supremacy. Uh, Erica, you talked about implicit bias, right? Like checking that. Are we really afraid? Uh, is is a person that uses violence really, you know, are we really afraid of them? Or are we socially conditioned to think that because right. it's a Black person that uses violence, we're afraid, you know? And then, of course, centering, I love what you said, Erica, inviting the Black women, the survivor, right? Really honoring that lived experience, which we talk about all the time. So those are like, that's how the list starts. But if you had to reflect on and share maybe one or two actions, right? In addition to what you've already said, that uh, organizations can immediately take um, in, in, in their plan towards centering Black families, what would that be in addition to what you said? One or two immediate steps. Erica, please. <laughs> I was hoping Umi was going to go first because I know she's going to just tell it all, right? <laughs> oh, and um, I'm fine with that too. <laughs> Do you want me to go? Well, I, I'll mention one or two okay. um, off the top of my head. One or two things that um, agencies can do. One is, uh, like we said, the needs assessment mm -hmm. um, and get training. That's all I got at the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you very much. Umi? Yeah, no, that was great, Erica. And you mentioned far more than that in your um, in mm -hmm. your answer, your discussion right before this question as well. So all of them were great. Um, I think I would add a couple of things to that. Um, one of them being that we need to honor Black women leadership. Um, we have mm -hmm. just not honored it at all. And so within organizations, if we're talking about, again, the white majority-led domestic violence field, then we will even have organizations that are predominantly serving Black people, but led by all white executives. And okay. um, that has to be changed. That has to be changed. We have to have Black leadership represented in our community and mm -hmm. in our field throughout every level of positions that exist. Um, and then we also have to figure out how we're going to partner with culturally specific organizations like Ujima and CSE to identify strategies 
um, and to collaborate with national, statewide, local, culturally specific organizations in their communities. We cannot continue to have mainstream organizations being the voice of our local communities and going into those communities without a racial equitable lens and um, doing That's more right. harm. That they have to partner with our national organizations like Ujima and CSE and be able to ensure that they're doing these things in an appropriate way. And then the last thing I just want to say is, yeah, you know, two things that we have to ask black families what they need. We, mm -hmm. we cannot just go in and provide this, um, this service or tell them what we think they need. We have to ask black families, black communities, what they need, black mothers, what they need. And then we have to provide what's needed financially, educationally, socially, um, it, it, within every system, with the legal system, every system, we have to figure out what their needs are and help to meet them. I have an additional comment. Please, please, of course. So, um, as I mentioned, my nonprofit, Supreme Transitions, we are not federally funded for some of the exact reasons that Omi just mentioned. Um, here within the last five years, we have been invited to tables with mainstream organizations and myself as a consultant to share what people actually need. Mm -hmm. And one of the strategies in not accepting federal funds or even going after federal funds is because we have found that we cannot provide the services mm -hmm. as needed by adhering to the guidelines to federal funding where um, I may need to uh, meet a survivor in the parking lot of a, of a corner store, you know, That's right. or um, a grocery store to assess what they need and, and create a safety plan or give resources. I may need to sit with them in a park, in an open space. And some um, guidelines say that that's not safe. Mm -hmm. But in actuality, if we understand that the survivor is the expert in their own circumstance, and that I am just following her lead and giving assistance on her journey to well-being and safety, then I need to be able to meet that person wherever right. they are, even in a food bank. We have set up non-traditional services like in food banks where people come to get free groceries and have a confidential table set up or um, within the police department, being having embedded domestic violence officers there um, that can share resources and assist in writing um, out certain forms for uh, survivors of violence. So it's, it's a lot of non-traditional ways that exclude um, grassroots organizations from being at the table That's and right. providing real information on what survivors need in real time. That's right. I mean, I am so inspired, y'all. Like, this is making me want to do direct services, and I haven't done direct services in a really <laughs> long time. <laughs> a long time. But I, you know, it's it's also this issue with funding also, I mean, I'm so glad you both are here and I'm so happy that I'm spending this well, time with you because I think it's going to be so beneficial for, for people to hear these things because it's like, um, yeah, we're getting funded, but it's restricted. So we can't, we're excluding the Black experience, creating services for Black communities, right? So it's kind of like a parallel oxymoron type of situation. So I really appreciate all the wealth of knowledge you have both shared with us today. I, I think it's going to help so many people uh, in our audience that really want to do the work. But most importantly, 
I am so grateful that you have both lifted not only your experiences, but in a very real way, um, the experiences of Black families and Black survivors. So I want to thank you both for your time, for your knowledge, for your expertise. Um, in just these few moments, you've inspired me, and I'm sure you're going to do that to our audience, for our audience as well. So thank you, Umi. Thank you, Erica. And we hope to speak with you very soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Look forward to hearing it. Thanks, Wendy. And now for our last words, a poem by Langston Hughes titled, Still Here. Been scared and battered. My hopes the wind unscattered. Snow has frizzed me. Sun has baked me. Looks like between them they done tried to make me stop laughing, stop loving, stop living. But I don't care. I'm still here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. If you know of any work or effort happening in your organization or community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us with the information about your efforts and we will be sure to reach out to you. You can email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Again, T-H-E-P-I-V-O-T at futureswithoutviolence.org. A very special thank you to Chance Taylor for his ongoing support in editing these episodes. Until next time, and thank you again for joining us.